You can go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Before I begin, I do want to take a moment to thank Emmanuel Church, to thank Pastor Dana for inviting me here to come and preach, and the elders as well. As Jason mentioned, I am a seminary student, and as a seminary student, we don't get opportunities to preach in front of congregations very often. So I'm especially grateful Dana went on vacation. <laughs> but I'm also grateful he invited me here to come and speak the word to you all. So let's say a quick prayer, and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, we can come here and we can worship through music, and that we can worship through the word. I ask that your presence would be here right now, and that uh, you would teach us something about your word, and that we would uh, take it and live it out in our lives. Thank you for today, Lord. Thank you that we can gather together to learn about you. In your son's most holy and precious name, Jesus Christ, amen. Now, I grew up in Estes Park in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado, and I hear that you all also have some mountains here. Up in uh, New Hampshire, I believe, you have Mount Washington, which is over 6,200 feet high, just about 1,000 feet lower than my hometown <laughs> where I grew up. And as I was growing up in that town as a teenager, one of my favorite things to do was to go to youth group. And uh, what I noticed about the youth group, which is especially interesting about the youth group, is that there was a variety of kids that came. And these kids would clump up and form groups of friends that tended to stick together. We had the Bible trivia lovers who knew their Bibles backwards and forwards. We had the, the skateboarders, those kids that would skate around doing ollies and kickflips in the gym. Uh, we had the, the jocks, the sports kids, who were really good at sports and knew all their favorite players' statistics. We had public schoolers, we had homeschoolers, and then we had Bible trivia-loving homeschoolers who weren't good at sports and hurt themselves when skateboarding. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> now, the, church, uh, the youth group was just a reflection of the church. The church at large, my local church at least, uh, we would also form into groups, into to clubs. And uh, some of these groups were official church groups. We had men's groups, women's groups, small groups, singles groups. And some of them were unofficial, uh, people that just shared common interests. We had people that liked to go on hikes. We had movie lovers. We had Stampin' Up! Stampers. Uh, we had uh, people who were into politics, uh, rich people, poor people, Caucasians, Hispanics. And all of these different groups of people can make the church a beautiful place. But people are people, and we don't always get along. Different groups see ministries different ways, and we want to do things differently. And pretty soon, we can begin to rub at each other, and the unity of the church can be at risk. Well, the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 3, was writing uh, to two groups of people that were not getting along, that were rubbing at each other, the, the Christian Jews and the Christian Gentiles. He was writing to the church in Rome, and recently the emperor of Rome had expelled the Jews from the city. And with him, the Christian Jews, the Christian uh, uh, believers who were Jewish, had to leave the city as well. And while they were gone, the Gentile believers took over the church. And, and they kind of ran things their way and uh, had their theology going. 
So when the Jewish Christians, when they were allowed to come back, these two groups of people began to conflict and to rub at each other. The Jews held to uh, salvation by obeying the law. And the, the Gentiles tended to abuse God's grace. And so into this situation, the Apostle Paul has to unite them as one. And he does this not by giving them new opportunities, new church ministries, new programs, but by setting their eyes on the gospel. And the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ traded his righteousness for their sins so that they could be united in him. And uh, Pastor Dana and the elders uh, have been leading you all through a study of the church, the acronym WIFES. And as close as Pastor Dana may come, he's not the Apostle Paul, uh, but he does understand that the center and the focus of a church must be the gospel, because the gospel is what allows us to do God's work. It's what brings us together. And the gospel is this, that Jesus traded his righteousness for our sins so that we could be united in him. So what does this have to do with our relationship with a holy God? What does, this have, what does righteousness have to do with us and him? Well, let's look at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. That's Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus traded his righteousness for our sins that we could be united in him. Well, what does righteousness have to do with it? What, what is righteousness? Let's begin there. What is righteousness? Well, righteous, righteousness means that God traded his, his rightness with God. Righteousness is right standing before a holy God. Righteousness is uh, being perfect before a completely perfect creator. Now, for God, his righteousness comes from his nature, from, from who he is. In his very essence and his being, he is completely holy and pure and just. There is not an ounce of sin in God. But for us, our righteousness comes from our judgment before God. That God will one day judge everyone, and those who he judges innocent will live. And God makes us righteous. He judges us innocent. So for God, God's righteousness comes from his nature, but our righteousness comes from our relationship with God. Now the Jews understood that their God was holy and pure, uh, and righteous, but I don't think they fully understood how impure and unholy they were. See, righteousness wouldn't come by works for the church in Rome. Righteousness wouldn't come by works for the church in Rome. Look at verse 21. 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The law was the entire Old Testament. We have the law and the prophets, uh, and, and, what, what, and it's the Ten Commandments are in there, and all the, the first couple books of the Bible that have all those laws of what to keep. Those laws have a point. They reflect the holy and perfect nature of God. And so what the Jews thought is that if they could keep those laws, they too would be holy and perfect. Even the Gentiles thought if they could do good works, maybe they too would be good. And the Apostle Paul is saying, no, this is not the case. Righteousness has been manifested separate from the law. It's apart from it. It's different. And this was especially hard for the Jewish believers to understand because their entire lives they had been obeying the law and trying to keep it, counting on this law to make them holy and pure before God. God promised uh, that righteousness would come. God promised that righteousness would come. And uh, as we read in Leviticus chapter 16, uh, we read about this, uh, what this righteousness used to look like, uh, what it used to look like in the past in the Old Testament. Now, we, we read about the Day of Atonement. We read about the Day of Atonement. And the Jews actually just celebrated this on the 25th and the 26th of September. And the, the Day of Atonement actually looks much different uh, today than what it did. Uh, but what it looked like uh, yesterday uh, in the Old Testament uh, is the, the high priest, he would get two goats and a bull and a ram and some other animals, and he would make sacrifices. And for the, for the two goats, he would cast lots. And the unlucky goat uh, was slain, and its blood was put in a bowl. And he would enter into the, the holy of holies, and he would sprinkle that blood on the Ark of the Covenant and on the mercy seat. Now, we read about the mercy seat, and that is the top of the Ark of the Covenant below the cherubim. And as the high priest was in there uh, sprinkling blood, he had to burn incense. You know why he had to burn incense? Because the very presence of God was visible above the mercy seat. So he had to block his vision, otherwise he would die. And he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, remember that term, mercy seat, because we're going to come back to it, mercy seat, and that this is where you, make, uh, you atone for the sins of the people by sprinkling blood. And then he went out back out uh, of the tabernacle and uh, took his two hands. Now, his hands would have been bloody, and he placed them on the other goat. And he transferred the sins of the nation of Israel onto the goat, and then they took that goat out into the wilderness and let it go. Now, if there are any animals, uh, animal lovers out there, you can put your earmuffs on. Because tradition says that they really didn't want that goat to come back. So occasionally they threw it off a cliff. <laughs> now, that's tradition. Take that as you will. Uh, but this, this was important. They did this year after year after year. God told them to celebrate the Day of Atonement. And it wasn't that he had it out for the animals in Israel. It was that it was pointing forward it was pointing forward to the final and everlasting day of atonement that was to come. 
that they needed a savior, that they, they needed, they needed ever, uh, final and everlasting righteousness. And this righteousness came, and it came in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God came in Jesus Christ. And we need the righteousness that Jesus has. has. Look at verse 22 and 23. It says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no distinction. It doesn't matter if you're a, a Christian Jew or a Christian Gentile or in some other church group. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all missed the mark. We have all disobeyed. Now look closely at the verse. Verse 23, it says, For all have sinned. What tense do you think sinned is in? There's past, present, and future. Well, it's in the past tense. We sinned. We sinned in the past. This is referring to our collective sin in Adam. Uh, as he represented us, we sinned in him. So before we were even born, we were sinful. We were unholy and impure. Right from the get-go. And what's the next part of the verse? Uh, we have all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. This word fall short is in the present tense. It's happening right now. We are continually falling short. We are sinning every single day, day by day. Man, we sinned in the past. We're sinning today. We need God's righteousness. We need a Savior. Now, I went to a community college for my first couple of years of school. And uh, my first semester at a community college, I took a humanities course. And actually, I think God was confirming in this course that I should become a pastor and preacher because I actually had the first opportunity to do public speaking. And I kept talking until the teacher made me stop. <laughs> so I guess that's Jason's job, uh, or one of the elders. Uh, but in that class, we, we learned about deus ex machina. Now, it looks like deus ex machina, but I have been informed by someone who loves theater, my wife, that that is not how it's pronounced. Deus ex machina. And we learned about this concept, and every year the Greeks would write plays. They would write all sorts of playwrights and uh, uh, plays. And these plays, they would write their characters into convoluted messes. So they would, they would write their characters into situations that they couldn't get out of. Their characters had no way to get out of the situations. In fact, the writers themselves didn't know how to get their characters out of the situation. And so what they would do is they would build these machines, the machina, the machine. And they would, it was a crane, and they would, at the end of the play, they would lower their god in to kind of sort things out. To say, all right, you do this, you do this, and then it would all work out. And the reason that so few plays are uh, remembered from this time is that uh, the deus ex machina wasn't considered very artistic. Uh, the Greeks wanted their heroes to work their problems out for themselves, and we do too. We want to work our problems out for ourselves, but we can't. We sinned in the past and we're sinning today, and chances are we're going to keep sinning in the future. We need a savior. And God graciously planned all along to send the Savior. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an afterthought. He knew that we needed Jesus Christ, and so he promised to send Jesus. 
And God offers the righteousness of Jesus to all who believe in Jesus, to all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Look at, the, uh, at verse 24. And God justifies, uh, he offers his justification, he offers righteousness by uh, his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's a gift. God offers his righteousness freely to all who put faith in Jesus. You see, Jesus was born without sin. He was born without sin. He lived a perfect life, never sinning once. And he lived, died, and rose again in perfect obedience to the Father uh, without ever sinning. So that all who believe in him and who put their faith in him could receive eternal life, receive righteousness. Now, faith is the instrument. It's the means by which we receive our salvation. But our salvation was won by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now, imagine that a firefighter, he runs into a burning building. And uh, he gets to one of the doors and he hears a child on the other side. And so he takes his ax and he breaks down the door. And he rescues that child. And he gets back outside. And later that week, the mayor, he calls a celebration. He calls everyone together and, and holds a celebration. And he invites the, the firefighter with his trusty ax to come up on stage. And he takes a garland, he takes a beautiful wreath, and he places it on the ax. And everyone claps and cheers for the ax that saved the day. This would be ridiculous. But this is so often what we do when we put so much emphasis on our faith saving us. We're not the heroes. Our faith is not the hero. Jesus is the, the hero. But our faith is absolutely necessary. We must have faith in Jesus to receive eternal life. Jesus traded his righteousness for our sins that we could be united in him. What does this have to do with us as individuals? What does this have to do with us as a church? We see how righteousness Faith and sin all fit together. What does it have to do with us? Uh, Jesus traded his holiness so that by faith all who believe in him would receive that holiness and we would give him our sin. He would take it upon himself. Look at verse uh, 24. Uh, yeah, 24. Uh, so for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified, justification. This is this concept that I've been talking about, the gospel, that Jesus trades his rightness with God for our wrongness with God so that we could be made one with God, made holy, made complete, be forgiven. See, God took the, the perfection of his son, the holiness, his spotlessness, and he places it on us. And uh, by faith, uh, our sins are removed and they're placed on Jesus Christ. And we're made holy. And you know what? This righteousness belongs to us now. It is my righteousness. I am made holy before God. This is justification that I am made right once again with God. Now, I worked out in Washington, D.C. Uh, for a while as a bank examiner. And as a bank examiner, we would travel the country looking at different banks. And we would rate their financial stability. Much like a borrower has a credit rating, 
we would have, we would give a rating to the bank. So your bank has a, a rating as well. And we would give them it based on their loans. I call it a holiness score. We give a holiness score based on their loans. And we would look at their loans and they could have either a perfect one for that loan, where that loan is just great, it's getting paid back, it's, it's absolutely perfect, it is certain, 1,000%, it's gonna be paid back. Or they'd have a 14, and 14's like red flags are, are going around and around, sirens are going off, that loan is dead in the water. And what righteousness is, is God taking the perfect one of Jesus Christ and taking our imperfect, unholy, dead in the water, 14, and switching them. No one ever got close to the one. Every single loan I looked like at never even got close. They were always maybe a five or a seven or an eight. It's impossible to reach the one. But God freely in his grace changes them so that we may have the perfect one score. We're not just good. We're not just okay. We're perfect. We're perfect. But maybe you're wondering, well, where's the justice in this? You call this justification? I see no justice in this. I just get off and Jesus gets punished. I don't see the justice. Well, the righteousness of God is freely given, but it was not easily won. It was freely given, but it was not easily won. Verse 25 says that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. Now, my, I'm reading from the ESV, and mine says propitiation. Um, and what this word propitiation means is that God has received a gift to satisfy his wrath, to satisfy his wrath and judgment. And so often we forget that God is perfect and holy, and even a little bit of sin is a sin against an infinite God and deserves an infinite punishment. Infinite death is the only just punishment. And propitiation means that Jesus Christ took the full wrath of God upon himself so that we wouldn't have to. He experienced God's anger, and he died on our behalf, so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus experienced the justice of God. You see, the cross is where the justice and the mercy of God meet. God, Jesus paid the due penalty for our sin, justice, and gave us eternal life in its place, mercy. It's a beautiful thing. Now, maybe you're wondering, uh, well, your word is a little different in the text. Maybe if you have an NIV, your word says sacrifice uh, of atonement. Uh, well, this word for propitiation and sacrifice of atonement, depending on your translation, is the actual same word in the original language. It's the same word, but it also has a third translation possibility. And that is the word mercy seat. That is the word mercy seat. You see, God promised that his final and everlasting day of atonement would come. And it has finally arrived in Jesus Christ. 
God has uh, promised righteousness would come, and it did. Jesus was uh, sacrificed in the presence of a holy God. He spilt his blood before God to take the sins off of us and to give us his righteousness. He experienced that wrath for us so that we could be united with Christ and made one, be made one again, made whole. It is a beautiful thing. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me as an individual? Well, it means that we no longer measure ourselves by our standards, but by God's. And God has measured us complete in Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that we no longer try to do good works or good things to try and please the Lord or try and sin less. We still try and do all that. But so often we live as if we are justifying ourselves before God. That's how we, we tend to live. Maybe you're a father and your life is consumed by your job. Because part of you, a little piece of you, thinks that if only I can provide for my family, that'll give me worth, and God will be pleased. Well, God is already pleased with you, and he won't show up at your annual review. He has uh, provided for your worth. That worth is in Christ Jesus. So trust is that you go back out to work, that God is providing for your worth. Maybe you're a mom, and, and uh, you're consumed by raising your family. And part of you thinks, if only I can raise good kids, God will be pleased. If only I can raise good kids, God will be pleased. Well, God is already pleased with you. He has, uh, his judgment on you is not based on your kids. They're based on his child, Jesus Christ. And he is perfectly pleased with you. And what you do in your home is an act of praise because you have the righteousness of Jesus. Maybe you're in college or going into college and graduating soon and you feel all the pressures of the world. The whole world wants you to succeed. And you feel pressured to do well in school, to get a job. Well, God has already judged you a success and he's based it on the judgment of his son. And that doesn't mean I wouldn't get a job. Still look for a job. But know that that job does not make you a success. Maybe you're a teenager or younger, and you feel the pressures of your peers. Uh, and they don't think you're funny or cool, or uh, they don't just want to be around you. Well, none of that matters in Jesus. Because you are united with your Savior, and your Savior says, wow. You are beautiful. Jesus traded his righteousness for our sin so that we could be united in him. And maybe you're wondering, well, what does this have to do with us as a local church body, as a church that comes together? Well, it means that we no longer base the success of our church on what it does. It's true that one day we will all have to stand before God, uh, all believers, all churches, and we will have to answer for what we've done. But if we're basing our passing grade that day on what we've done and not what Christ has done for us, man, we are in trouble. 
If we base it on, look at the success of our programs or look at the success of our ministries, we're already lost because we're taking our eyes off the gospel and what Christ has already done for us. And you know what? It makes sense that uh, when these ministries uh, start to rub at each other, it makes sense that we get angry and mad, if that's our, our other view, because we really are counting on the success of our ministry to justify us before God. That if this doesn't go well, God won't like me. That is self-justification. And if you've been justifying yourself for any reason, I invite you to something more. I invite you to something more. Imagine believers or a church that understood just what Christ had accomplished for them. Molehills would stay molehills. And we would shine as a city on a hill. Uh, We would not have any fear to go out and share the gospel, to be a witness, because we can't fail. Jesus already succeeded at the cross. And boy, what a message you would have to share with Chelmsford and the rest of the New England area, that Jesus died for sinners just like you and me. And he paid the penalty for saints in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and all who put their faith in him today so that we as one can be united as the gospel, that Jesus traded his righteousness for our sin so that we can be united in him. Now, uh, those Christian Jews and those Christian Gentiles probably never stopped being who they were. Uh, Even after Paul wrote them this letter, they probably didn't change much in in their nature and who they were. And the kids in my youth group never changed that much either. Uh, The skateboarders still got yelled at in the gym for skating around. Uh, The sports kids were always the first ones to get picked first for games. And the Bible trivia lovers were always the fastest ones to find Obadiah. (laughs) Uh, And you know what? You might not change that much either. You might still be in those groups. And as groups, uh, you know, we do ministry and we we can tend to rub up against each other. Uh, But this is why God gives us something greater to set our eyes on, to focus on. He gives us the gospel that Jesus traded his righteousness for our sins so that we could be united in him. And as a church body that we can be one because our focus is on the gospel and what Jesus Christ has already accomplished. Jesus traded his righteousness for our sin so that we can be united in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have made this swap. Thank you that you have given us your holiness, that we don't need to fear judgment. I I ask that we would stop judging ourselves as if we have not received your righteousness, that we would go forward from here in a new knowledge from the heart of what you have done for us. And I pray that this church, Lord, would be united in your gospel of what Christ has done for them. We pray all these things to your name. Amen. Receive the benediction. It's from Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, 
that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go in Jesus Christ. You are dismissed.